Hello and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, what have you been playing slash doing recently? Well, I've been playing lots of secretive things that I can't really talk about. Ooh, that's That's, exciting. it's, It's awkward, isn't it? Yeah, some games for review, a game that let's just say I'm very excited for and people who know this podcast can probably reverse engineer what that might be you say that but that there's like a few that tick that box so um oh yeah, yeah. well i'm playing a couple so you know it, it probably fits yeah so uh, rather unhelpfully that i can't really talk about them yep that's, what a tease i am that's right matthew's been given early access to the sonic origins collection on, um... <laughs> yes <laughs> i'm now a sonic head after last week's amazing episode <laughs> Yeah, I um to those who are still listening after our Sonic episode, I mean, uh, well done. Thank you for you know continuing along the ride with us. Um, this episode is about something quite sort of specific. So we've done like episodes about reviews before. We've done two episodes focusing specifically on reviews. We get asked about that whenever we do a mailbag. People are really interested to know about the process of doing that. And, and corruption. They always want us to basically say everyone's corrupt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, when I'm reading this in my three mansions, I, um, I, I think, you know, I reflect on my better days. But no, basically, I thought it would be really cool to talk about games before they're actually released and the process of covering that, because I think that's arguably just as interesting as um, as the review process. So not entirely sure what I'm naming this episode, but um, it might have something like cover features or upcoming games or something like that in the title. But we've got a yeah. very firm plan where we're going to talk about, basically like in um, three different parts, we've got three sections. One's on cover features for games magazines and writing those and what that's like. And um, also what it's like from an editor's perspective. And then we've got something more broadly about the weirdness of covering games that don't exist yet or are in the process of being made. And then we've got a little section on press trips at the end, which has actually just come up in the um, on, on a Kotaku piece by John Walker this week. And um, is uh, not the reason we're discussing it. We actually had this down before that, but um, did make me think about some of them in interesting ways. So, uh, yeah, I think that basically we're going to talk about all the different parts of covering games before they're actually out. E3 demos, all that sort of thing. Hopefully people will find it interesting. If that sounds super vague, I think it'll be a good time. So, um, Matthew, <laughs> are, you, are you pumped about um, discussing some of this stuff? Yeah, I'm pumped. I'm always interested to hear your perspective on this stuff as well, because I think we had quite a different experience. Like, the covering Nintendo games is quite different when it comes to, like, cover opportunities and upcoming games. So, yeah, it should be good. Mm, yeah, what you're basically saying is covering bad Wii versions of um, mainline console games that were made by, like, um, other developers, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that, and, and we'll also, you know, going back over in Gamer, like, a lot of our cover games were just reviews or quite basic previews. Like it was quite rare that we got something genuinely juicy. So I feel like you've got a bit more experience in navigating these waters. Mm, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but also um, the the thing that will kind of come up when we're discussing cover features is that there's a big gap there. Where in the sort of like prime of my you know working as a section editor um, sort of career, I'm working on a film and TV magazine, so I actually miss out on some good years of covering big games. So um, mm. I think we'll probably have an equal number of experiences to draw upon. But um, hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. So before we get into that, Matthew, I did want to ask you a bit more about what you've been up to lately. We've had like um, a run of quite dense, serious episodes. So um, have you been like watching anything that's um, sort of caught your eye or that you've um, that you've been enjoying? Oh, well, I've been rewinding the clock uh 20 years and we've been rewatching the sopranos which 
you know, not not very game relevant. There was a Sopranos game, wasn't there? Oh yeah, like a disaster one. There was a game based on the Shield too, right? This all happened around the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on paper that should be excellent. The kind of risk reward of trying to kind of be a bent cop and not getting caught that could be exciting probably not in this day and age but i don't think people would go for it um yeah so yeah i've been i've been watching that and just playing hours upon hours of of my mystery games yeah i know what the mystery game is and um yeah i uh, look forward to discussing it in an upcoming episode so that should be good <laughs> but um yeah so the sopranos where are you up to currently in um in your run just started series two which uh so yeah Catherine hasn't seen any of it so it's it's all kind of new and fresh which is which is exciting. It's, it's weird. I haven't seen it for a long time, and actually going back because we just rewatched The Wire as well, and both shows are often in the conversation for like the best show of all time. And generally, I feel like a lot of people come down with Sopranos. Like I think whenever there are articles about the greatest TV show of all time, The Sopranos is more often than not at number one. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. There are other shows I enjoy more, or it feels a little dated. That kind of age of TV it ushers in, like maybe does that formula in a bit more sophisticated way or a bit slicker. It's kind of important not to underestimate kind of how important it was, I guess. But mm. I don't know if it's still necessarily the best. I'm completely on the same page with you on that. I've actually only seen the first three seasons of um, The Sopranos, but um, I think that like you say, it's dated in some ways, and I think that just comes from the fact that it's basically bridging the gap between like old TV, the more sort of serialized TV shows you're getting on network TV um, back in the day, particularly sort of like you know um, sort of cop dramas and stuff, with um, you know what would become prestige TV. It's kind of figuring out the blueprint of that basically, and um, yeah. I think it, it means it can't help but feel dated in some ways. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting, kind of putting it in context, and just knowing that so many of the Sopranos writers go on to create like amazing other shows. Mm. You know, the Mad Men and Boardwalk Empire are both ex Sopranos guys. I think. Yeah, I think it's a good um, time to be watching, rewatching something like that as well because it's super fallow for new TV shows at the moment. Yeah, so, um, I'll, I'll watch yeah. a bit of Loki as well, which <laughs> I've I have been enjoying. First of all, good theme tune. Uh, which is, you know, my major complaint of all Marvel stuff is they don't have a theme tune that suits the hero. The mm. Loki theme tune, very good. Owen Wilson, uh, surprise superstar, I think. Yeah, I feel like if ever there's going to be like a, a sort of top five Matthew Castle beefs article, Marvel theme tunes will be at the top. Yuji Naka will be in there somewhere, of course. Um <laughs> You uh, have you still just seen the first two episodes? Yeah, we, yeah, we're not. We haven't watched three yet. Yeah, the third one's pretty bad, but um, you know, other people seem to like it actually. And I, I'm kind of wondering if I'm actually in the minority. And it's just me and three people I follow on Twitter who don't like it. But um, mm. it's a bit like Doctor Who, and I think Doctor Who is terrible. So um, that's uh, you know maybe where we sort of differ a little bit. But mm. hey, yeah. Other than that, I've just been watching sort of like I've finished Mayor of Easttown a little while back, and I'm sort of between things. I basically obsessively watch King of the Hill at the moment, an animated show that I didn't really watch. The time i don't think i was like i think you have to be a certain age to actually kind of get it it's a bit more textured yeah. than stuff like the simpsons but it's, it's quite comforting it's a 90s time capsule and also the characters are so well drawn in it it's actually like um i think it's one of the very best animated series it's um mm. it's, been a, it's been a fun watch so uh that was our brief diversion matthew i hope you enjoyed it it was um, yeah it was it was good thank you <laughs> yeah good um yeah three minutes of pop culture chat so um yeah i know that people 
with the Listen to Games podcast. Don't like, don't necessarily always like it when podcast hosts talk about baseball or what they eat for breakfast for twenty minutes, and we do try and avoid that. But um, every now and then, you'll just have to indulge us. We but, have to uh, catch up. Like, we, you know, we don't see each other as much these days. So. <laughs> That's true. So it ends up being a bit like um, a job, doesn't it? We log in, do the podcast, log out, and then just chat about the podcast in between. So um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what have what did you eat for breakfast, Matthew? Uh, I, I I'm not actually a big breakfast eater. <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, right, we'll we'll litigate that another time. But um, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, let's let's kick off then. So section one, we're going to talk about cover features and writing those for games magazines. So Matthew, the first thing I really wanted to ask you was, what do you think a great games magazine cover feature does? What do you think its kind of purpose is? I think it's I I, I kind of tie it in with a certain level of access, and it's the ability to tell a kind of complete story that you maybe don't get to tell with normal games coverage. I feel like normally you have a piece of the puzzle. Maybe you have a demo, maybe you have an interview. And for my money, a, a great cover feature gives you everything you need to tell the, kind of the, the, the full picture and you can take all those individual elements, make them work in tandem and come out with something sort of extra sort of special feeling. I would say is broadly it. Yeah. When I was looking at the best ones today, I got the same sort of feeling, which is that if the publisher controls, let's say like there's something like, this is a really tortured analogy, actually, before I've even started, I'm kind of worried about it, where it's going. <laughs> but um, let's, say the pub- it. <laughs> let's say the publisher guards what's behind the door, right? There's something cool behind the door. The cover feature is there to kind of like crack the door open and explain to you what's behind it. And it's like doing so in a way that is um, more enriching than what the official announcement could do for you. It's like, this is, you're telling the story of this is what the game is. Normally it's like one game. Sometimes it's like hardware. But generally speaking, it's like, there is this game. It's coming out. It's important. This is the story of that game. Ideally from the people, um, from the people who are making it filtered through someone who's discerning about what they're seeing and and you know excited to learn about what they're seeing so yeah yeah that's kind of how i see it i I would agree with that i think part of it comes down to space just because this tends to be the biggest bit of writing in a magazine and so you have a bit more room to sort of tell that story i mean all, all previews and reviews are stories in a way but this feels a lot more comprehensive absolutely so I was wondering, like, obviously, you know, you and I have read all kinds of different magazines over the years. How do you think Games Magazine cover features differ to other types of magazine cover features? I personally think they're quite influenced by other magazine cover stories. You've got a generation of people who grew up reading magazines and they've learned how to tell those stories from other magazines. So what you actually get is kind of a weird hybrid on paper, that you know, they're kind of serving the same purpose. Say if you've got a film magazine and they've got the kind of human access and they've got the set access. I guess where it differs is if you can play the game, you have impressions as well. You know, you don't tend to get that with film. I keep coming back to films because only, the only other magazines I really read are film magazines. So I've got limited experience outside of this. But in other pop culture, I feel like they go there. They don't see the finished product where you get a better hint of it in games. So this is a very roundabout way saying i think where games cover stories differ is that they can tell a more complete story or have a better idea of where the thing is going than maybe film magazines or pop culture or other magazines do does that make sense absolutely yeah so i think that the reason i think that games magazine cover features 
how can, can like reach a higher bar than some other types of um, cover features is because, like you say, you have access to the thing while it's being made, and if you can play it, um, you know, which you, you can't necessarily with all cover features, but in the, on the occasion that you can, or you can see a really detailed demo, you can form impressions of it in a way that you can't if you're, you know, let's say going to the set of a film where you kind of have to take, you have to kind of have to give the film the room to like either disappoint or be good. Like it's a hard thing to like be on the set of a Zack Snyder film and go, well. You know, his last couple of films were shit, so this looks like it's going to be dog shit as well. Like, it's not necessarily... I mean, that is not a nuanced example, but, you know, <laughs> what I'm saying is that the um, there's less to kind of draw an opinion on from that kind yeah. of picture. Yeah. It's weird, actually, because there have been occasional moments in the last few years where it felt like film studios tried doing a version of this where, you know, they'd go, they do a set visit, the film magazines would get an interview and then they'd maybe get to watch like a 10 minute scene, which they could like relate. And the idea of like a film preview has always seemed baffling to me because I don't think a 10 minute section of a game can tell you a lot more about the complete thing than a scene from a Star Trek film can, for example. It's, I don't think you can kind of equate the two and it's always strikes me odd when they do try to do a, like a hands-on film watching preview it's a, the concept of that is baffling. There's a fine line you have to walk between like hype and being discerning. It's a really tough thing to do. And you kind of like walk that line. On this then, I was curious about what you think makes a good cover feature. I think there's a really clear clear way to know what a good cover feature is. But I was curious to hear your perspective on it. I'd say it changes massively game to game. Like what I actually want and what I'm actually trying to achieve. I'd say there's like a hard and fast rule well, I couldn't say that there is a hard, hard and fast rule that I have. One of the one of the big distinctions can be made whether it's like genuinely exclusive or not. I feel like if you're the only person seeing something, you have a lot of space to kind of interpret it and and do what you want. I feel the remit of the piece changes if you know it's going to be part of a big wave. You know, if you know lots of other outlets are seeing it or it's coming from an E3 session or something then I feel like the, the pressure is on to have a, a, a bit more of a unique angle or a unique slant. When you're the only person in the room, like whatever you have is naturally kind of interesting and unknown. Um, otherwise, you have, to be, you have to be a lot more kind of careful and it comes down to quite minute questions of like how you use interview time and like the level of detail you go into demos, like what you actually extract from it. Like I find myself, and I don't know if you ever have ever done this, but I often find myself sort of second guessing what I think the obvious line is and the obvious stuff which other people are going to focus on. And then I'm trying to almost get around that and, and get to the, the next layer of something or something that I don't feel like competitors, competitors are going to have. Um, maybe that feels more present in my mind because I've just come from, you know, doing a big stint of making videos for YouTube, where the timeliness and the competitive nature of the work is so much more aggressive than it felt when I was doing magazines. So there I had to really be on top of, like, having something different, saying something new. Um, but in my head, that's a general rule. It, sound, it feels kind of sound. Yeah, I think sometimes the question of, like, what's your angle on it is determined by the publication you're from. And I really felt this on PC Gamer, where it's like, mm. let's say you're covering a Deus Ex game that another outlet has a cover on, like an Xbox or PlayStation magazine. Then 
you can sort of draw upon the lineage of Deus Ex in a way that those magazines can't because, you mm. know, there is no console where you can play every Deus Ex game. It doesn't exist. But obviously mm. they all it has such a rich PC heritage. So in that way, you, you're kind of like you can frame it from, you know, the immersive sim angle and you can kind of know that the systemic stuff or like the the sort of level design is, is what the people reading will be excited about. So mm. sometimes I think that answers the question, but trickier when maybe you're on like a single format console Mac, maybe where the angle isn't quite as apparent. I will also put my hand up and say a lot of the magazines I've worked for, the challenge of what goes into the cover feature rarely arose just because like the actual access we had was so sort of limited or that or what we were dealing with was so limited. I mean, there's the, there's like a dream world where you have you know, the choice of multiple cover features a month and multiple ways of tackling them. The reality, in my career anyway, was I felt like a lot of the decisions were kind of made for me by there was such an obvious choice and then the access to it was so kind of sort of garbage that the art of the cover feature became more about bandaging up the opportunity rather than having an exciting opportunity and working out what to do with it. Yeah. I totally, um, totally feel you on that, and um, that's. Bl- I know that's a bit bleak, but <laughs> it, it is true. <laughs> it's the reality of being a Nintendo magazine, I guess. Where the yeah, access is just that so was limited. more in. A, yeah, if anything, like my my time on official Xbox magazine got into the craft of cover features a bit more, and of all the things I've worked on, while I'm not as invested in the games we covered on official Xbox magazine, I felt like the writing craft of the cover features kicked in a bit more and I actually got to stretch those muscles on Nintendo I, I just didn't you know very rarely maybe maybe a couple of times yeah so like we said on our cover features episode I think like the first cover episode was what makes a great cover and it is a mixture of obviously great artwork great access ideally playing the game or seeing some bit of the game I read a um a bunch of cover features before we did we did this and I read two edge features actually like um 21 years apart so one of the only edge issues on archive.org one that has Fantasy Star Online on the cover. Mm. And um, it's got an interview with our friend Yuji Naka in it, actually, who um, I forgot I forgot that they were, um, they were the developer of the game, Sonic Team. It was a, he was the producer of the game. Mm. And um, it's a really good feature. And the Ed's intro, the editor's intro, the first page, is really good because it says, right, the um, PS2 just launched in North America. Like, it's sold, sold all these units. So you might be wondering why we've got a Dreamcast game on the cover. And it's because, you know, if this succeeds... This is the start of something new. It's a four-player online co-op game. It's something people have never seen before. And the, and the piece basically suggests that it could be like, you know, a sign of the future. And of course it was, because, you know, the likes of Monster Hunter can be traced back to it. It's a very influential game, Fantasy Star Online. Hmm. Just happened to be released on the wrong format. The cover feature is really revealing. Um, Naka sounds really harried in it. Like, really like the kind of walls are collapsing around him with the sort of final days of the Dreamcast. But he's trying to push out this thing that could potentially save it. And um, mm. that's kind of how he sees it. It's like, this is a revolutionary game. He's really frustrated by the fact that he can't release the game worldwide simultaneously, which he think it needs to succeed. And he was probably right. Mm. But he was a bit ahead of his time on that, I think. He talks about how hard it was to make a sort of like dialogue system between players that could kind of cross nationalities where it doesn't matter if you're, you know, playing in Japan or the UK. And he's thinking about all this stuff that games would eventually solve. And it's um, it's a really interesting piece that just blows that game wide open. And then mm. has a little bit of a demo in there as well where they kind of go into a dungeon and stuff. And that was really cool. And then, to kind of as, as a contrast, I read Edge's most recent issue, which is um, has Jet the Farshaw on the cover. 
with mm. a feature by um, Chris Schilling, who I think listens to this. And it did exactly the same thing, where it was like, we're telling the story of this game. Like, it took years to make. It's these, um, uh, was it Super Brothers, the game they made before yeah. that, I think? Yeah, so, you know, a long time in the works this. They talk about what happened when No Man's Sky came out and they were making this game that sort of had a bit of crossover in terms of what it is. And talked about how, like, this um, engine cooling system that was inspired by Motorstorm Pacific Rift. And I got the same thing of, like, this game has been blown wide open by this cover feature. And when it, when mm. it hits like that, it feels really good. But so often, it, it, so often I found it wasn't the case. It was like maybe a third to half the time there was a bit of bandaging going on, like you say. Yeah. So I was curious, Matthew, what are some cover features you remember being happy with for whatever reason? So for my Nintendo years, weirdly, I think the best cover feature I ever wrote wasn't actually for Endgamer. I wrote official Nintendo's Dragon Quest IX feature. Um, I talked about the interview before with the Yuji Horii and the composer smoking away in the room with their giant pile of cigarettes. Uh, but the feature that came of that interview, I, I was super, super proud with, because, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, Dragon Quest was like a known about thing, but also needed some introducing to the readers. It was already a phenomenon in Japan. Uh, you know, it had this, you know, when we went on the trip, we kind of went to see all the people meeting up for the the kind of the wireless kind of cross not the cross play there was like a, a a dungeon sharing feature on ds and basically crowds of people would gather outside this big electronics store and we went to see that in person we interviewed some of them and you know the, the trip was actually perfectly designed to give us this kind of context or a snapshot of how big dragon quest was in japan like the cultural element before we went to interview them so i actually went into that interview with just lots of stuff to talk about in terms of you know i played the game i had some questions about the game but i also had this sort of wider cultural thing and it felt like i was just trying to sort of introduce what was exciting or what i thought was exciting you know to a sort of i imagined a reader who didn't really know dragon quest very well at all and that felt like you know, I played the game, I had this extra layer of like weird anecdotal stuff from the trip, and then I had this killer interview where they really, really delivered and everything I said, they had very thoughtful questions. And that, w- that was probably the only time I've had a feature where I had so much more than I could possibly use mm. that it felt like, you know, I was making big decisions in the writing to to kind of direct the story and, you know, I could really choose my angle to kind of weave it all together and, I you know... Even if I say so myself, I think it's I think it's a, a, a fine kind of all all encompassing look at the kind of craze around that game. It's just annoying that I wrote it for official Nintendo. <laughs> well, in retrospect, I suppose you know it's still something you can say. You know, I did this, which is cool. But um, yeah, yeah, I um, I think it's that's funny because I feel like I've lived through three or four attempts of Square Enix to be like this is the Dragon Quest game that introduces it to the West and like. Each time it's kind of a similar story of, you know, this series is massive in Japan. Probably like a bit more sort of, um, you know, cultural penetration now from the fact mm. that it's been on Game Pass and stuff. And like um, those Builders games seem to be quite successful. But yeah, it's funny. I feel like I've I've seen that story play out several times. But being able to be there firsthand and see what a big deal it was, that is really yeah, cool. It was, it was, yeah, it was great. And like just being able to talk to, you know, the creators of this thing about stuff I'd talked with, you know, a Japanese fan outside this store about just felt like quite a I had a lot of unique stuff that I'm not used to sort of dealing with and it you know 
the the the, the only thing missing from that was that we rev- we interviewed them in like quite a bleak office and you know if we just had if we'd just been able to see like where it was made you know just to have a bit more color just to put it into that context um there is something exciting about going to a studio that gives you some fun stuff to work with but i think you know i've only been to a couple of you know studios for for press trips uh, ever in, in 14 years it felt quite rare to me that you had that chance but that that's that's the only thing i mean it's probably just a really boring bleak office with lots of office dividers is how a lot of japanese studios seem to look whenever you see behind the scene videos yeah um but it would have been interesting like when i when i, I did a cover feature about uh pokemon black and white and we went to game freak and their offices have some quirks like all their meeting rooms are quite heavily themed around almost like the gym not they weren't based on gyms but they they were almost like the gyms in pokemon there was like a room which was all kind of like an aquarium like and there was another room which was like a sort of a a, a sort of martial arts dojo and so that was quite quirky but what i thought was striking about that is when you looked out the window of game freak you know they're right in the middle of tokyo and all you see is the urban sprawl of tokyo and like literally there's no greenery for miles and miles like <laughs> the only hint of nature is like the mountain on the horizon and you get a bit of perspective about the mindset of making this like natural game and this game about embracing nature and the the kind of the joys of of just like romping around the countryside and you think well it you know the escapism of it like makes total sense which is something you wouldn't get if you hadn't been there and like seen that bleak view <laughs> oh that's awesome that's great and then did you turn around and go but why do your games look so shit and then you um sort of, <laughs> you march into the martial arts room and a guy kicks the shit out of you um yeah the, the problem with that trip is they are so like honed at talking about pokemon that they don't really answer anything they don't want to talk about mm. so you know you throw in some you know quirky little observations like that and they kind of fell on deaf ears a bit which was a shame like they didn't really kind of go for it um, I don't know if something was just lost in translation, but I, I made that observation at the time of like, you know, where do you get this? You know, where do you take your natural inspirations from? Like, where are you going? Because, you know, it ain't that. And uh, yeah, just like, please, just look, please look forward to playing the next installment in the Pokemon franchise. That's kind of answers. <laughs> yeah, uh, like Poke- P- Pikachu is cute. Um, <laughs> there aren't. Oh, man. I and mean, that's for another time. But that that there. I, I really do not like interviewing the Pokemon people because they, they whoever you're, whatever publication you're from, I feel like they're talking to you as if your reader's going to be 10. Right. Like, it's very, you know, you ask them about character design and they really boil it down to, like, cool Pokemon for the boys, cute Pokemon for the girls, which is probably where some of my slight unenthusiasm for Pokemon comes from because I, you know, I have a lot of like people my age telling me how sophisticated they are, but then I feel like I've met the people who've made them and they're quite open about it being aimed at 10 year olds. So I sometimes wonder if, if, if some of that sophisticated stuff is actually just a total misreading of it because they're like, no, no, it's not about that at all. It genuinely is a thing that is targeted purely at children, but maybe I'm just hearing what I want to hear. I don't know. I think you're probably, you're probably right. I think that, um, Every time I've tried to play Pokemon as an adult, and this is probably for straight people listening who like Pokemon, I just haven't... There isn't that next layer of something to really get your teeth into, like either thematically or 
whatever. Yeah. And as it kind but of I've goes had... on, they uh, they kind of like soften off all of the hard edges of it. And like even the v- rival, who's a dick in the first game, is now just like really friendly in the newer ones. Yeah, but if you say this, people are like, oh no, no, there's all this stuff. You know, I've even I like you know. I'm pretty sure I'm not misrepresenting his views here. I've even had the mighty Rich Stanton, friend of the show, tell me, like, how clever he thinks the Pokemon writing. and It's, like, I don't know, steeped in, like, wry humour. And if it is, it's too wry for me. I don't get it. Because I just hear, you know, yay, we're going on an adventure. I hope I had to find a best friend. And it's like, hmm, okay. I mean... Fair enough. <laughs> well, I mean, for anyone playing the um, drinking game at home, we've had Yushinaka and Rich Santa now, so you're probably already <laughs> slightly drunk um, going into the next bit. Now, you tap into something really interesting there, though, which is that going on a trip can sometimes add colour to the to the sort of copy. I think, like, um, I don't think I ever quite integrated that in a way that was, like, that sort of exciting or interesting. And I was really wary of doing, like, an experiential feature where it's, like, um, you know... I, I stand um, looking at the horizon on market in San Francisco, and I'm about to see. <laughs> right, but you know what I mean? But, like, yeah, that kind of wanky. But I think that's. I think that's that's the thing I was talking about, like about like an inherited style, because that is how a lot of film magazines and interview writers write mm. about their subjects, and I think we read that and absorb that, so you get a lot, you know. Jeff Goldblum strides across the lobby towards me, you know, six foot of charisma and a beaming smile, all that kind of stuff. And actually, when you try and apply that to game stuff, it's, you know, a slightly nervous man sits at his desk <laughs> yeah, and I... doesn't make great eye contact. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, it's, it's kind of the truth of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, did you mention the um, uh, Yujiori smoking cigarettes in the piece that you wrote? Oh, uh, I did. I did. I deck so I because I also did a sort of smaller piece, a sort of wrap up piece for End Gamer, and I definitely talked about it in End Gamer because it felt like more of a detail. <laughs> I don't think I did because I don't think official Nintendo magazine would have wanted a big thing about a developer cigarettes. Yeah. I think it, the feature opened with a big thing about the composer when he heard I was British. He started banging on about Yorkshire puddings. He was like, "Ah, yes, Yorkshire puddings," <laughs> he said, and. Unless he thought I looked like a Yorkshire pudding, which I don't know, it could be true. So, yeah, that kind of broke the ice. And then we started talking about how much he loved a roast dinner. And that was kind of my in. Because, yeah. you know, I felt like, oh, here's here's something you don't expect to see at the start of this this Dragon Quest kind of uh, feature. And it, it just felt like a, a, a fun sort of surreal beat <laughs> yeah 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 references to cigarettes aren't appropriate for the sonic unleashed loving audience of O&M but um, in endgamer <laughs> yeah. it's like you know after nintendo after dark it's a bit more um if any mascot smokes it's sonic <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes i kind of regret not being able to use some of those details like um i went on a trip to um the assassin's creed odyssey developers whichever year that came out was it 2018 i think it was yeah so yeah i went i went to um uh, quebec for that and you know, it's not a, like a massive city, Quebec, but it's really beautiful. And I went apparently one of the few months a year that's not covered in snow, which is quite fortuitous. But um, I spent quite a lot of time around the um, like some of the level designers and the writers, and I got to see them interact and like hang out as sort of friends. And I was so tired I couldn't even make conversation. Like um, mm. I was just like I couldn't even really open my mouth. I'd had like two hours sleep and because I'd, I'd arrived like four a.m. the day before. But it was actually really kind of illuminating to see people who make games interacting as friends like in a way that like i realized doing that how 
often I don't, I've never really had proper access. It's been like a guy in a room in a, in a hotel mm. in like an event or whatever. And, um, yeah, I sometimes think that the kind of value of that is a little bit underrated. I was thinking, oh, it's kind of a shame that I wrote a straight preview of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. There was no need to write anything else. It wasn't a cover feature. But it was yeah. a shame that we couldn't just... Um, a shame there was nowhere to tell that story. I suppose it's this podcast. But I just kind of like... I just remember vividly what it was like hearing them interact. Or talk about... Um, talking about like the meeting room that was themed after the red room from Twin Peaks in their office. Like It looked exactly like that with the red curtains oh, and the right. zigzag floor. Like... You know, there was nowhere to really talk about this stuff, but I thought it was, I guess I felt like it was important as someone who was there, but it didn't necessarily have a place in a kind of straight preview. But maybe a cover feature is where that stuff can live a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, you asked about like features I was happy with. I mean, the the other one I was going to say as well as the Dragon Quest Nine was um, for official Xbox, I did uh, like the Rise of the Tomb Raider kind of reveal feature. And we went over to Crystal Dynamics and they'd recently moved offices to this new studio. So it had this kind of um, sort of sheen of newness. You know, everything looked very kind of trendy. But in their building, it had these in, in their office space, it had these massive windows which didn't have like proper blinds or bl- or the, like the blinds hadn't been installed maybe they hadn't been there that long and because of this there was this horrendous sun glare like everywhere in the studio like no one could see their screens so what they had to do was um every desk basically had a huge parasol above it so it was this floor of you know relatively open plan but just a sea of umbrellas with all these people working under it so their computers could be in the shade and like that felt like that was the kind of in for that cover feature because you know Lara Croft is this adventurer who goes and deals with these you know bleak or not bleak these exotic climates that are really challenging and here were a load of game developers who were like bested just by the sun and had to kind of hide in the shade and it just felt like oh this is perfect you know like this this detail kind of gives me my total in to what this studio is about and the kind of worlds they're inhabiting. And it just felt like, you know, gold that, you know, it's just a shame you don't have that so much of the time. Yeah, absolutely. On that kind of subject then, Matthew, I was curious if you could talk about some times that you'd, um, you've done cover features where it went less well or when you found it a bit of a struggle. You alluded earlier there to a bit of um, what kind of like occasions where access was harder to get probably for, most likely for Nintendo games where they don't generally do many interviews anyway. But um, yeah, how about that side of things? Yeah, I mean, the, my least favourite cover feature to write is no game access, as in you don't get to play it, you don't even get to see it, because it's either such early days or, you know, the games, they don't trust you to see it, you know, and it, that bugs me because I think you can trust us to see it and understand the idea without being like, oh, it's all broken and sort of fucked. You know, I'd be able to understand, you know, just to understand like how it moves or, you know, because until you can see a game, they're so abstract to, to, to try and even guess at. And I had to do a couple of cover features very early on in Endgamer. Like probably the cover features I cut my teeth on were the most unsatisfying to write. I did one on Scarface and one on Knights. Uh, journey of dreams in both cases i didn't see the game i was i had an interview and a fact sheet about the game and it was kind of like here's the fact sheet which you can base your questions on for the interview so i was really reaching around in the dark and then you had screenshots and you were trying to match what they were saying to what was going on in the screenshots like the and and, and also like scarface i'd played a bit of it on ps2 so i sort of knew what the the deal was it wasn't you know 
someone can say like imagine that except you shoot with the point you aim with the pointer and you're like okay I've kind of got the extent of this game. But, like, Knights wasn't something I was massively familiar with anyway. It's quite an abstract game to begin with. So it was like an abstract preview of an abstract game with these interviews from... It was, like, Izuka, the head of the, the now head of the Sonic team. And that was just, like, such a mess. Like, I, I was flicking back over that, and it's... It's just me guessing at stuff. Like, you know, you end up asking questions like, in black and white, can you just tell me what you do in the game? So I have some idea, because I literally don't know what I'm talking about here. It's it's a complete reach. And they they were very unsatisfying to write, very unsatisfying to read. So, yeah, I'm kind of glad I got that out of my system early on. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When I was um, looking over a lot of, like, issues of Edge this morning, they... Um... I think something I really like about Edge is they, I think they only basically do a cover feature unless they've got like the best access for it. And yeah, that shapes the type of stuff they do. Sometimes it's blockbusters, but like, um, even when they do like console reveal covers, they, um, or like, you know, a console launch cover, I read their, um, bit their PS5 issue. They had like an interview with Jim Ryan and stuff. So, um, mm. I did an interview with Insomniac about Spider-Man, Miles Morales and, um, and yeah, I, I, I kind of like, like that approach. And I, I sort of think about a parallel world where, if I could have just picked games based on the access, probably half of the magazines I've worked on would look completely different. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to say earlier on when you were talking about like what what makes a, a game cover feature different from other magazines, and I don't know if this is true of other magazines, but I feel like, you know, weirdly, it's the biggest piece of writing in the issue, but it also feels like, in a way the one you have like the least control of over like often it's the bit of the mag you're least happy with in terms of concept mm. because it has to be a game that sells and that isn't necessarily the game that's interesting or the game that you have good access to and there's so many so many attempts to stitch together something from nothing just because you wanted to get the word battlefield on the cover or something you know it's it, it, it kind of bummed me out a bit you know, as a staff writer, because, you know, in that position, you have no control whatsoever. You have literally no say over the cover. But often I was writing these cover features, so it was just like being dealt. Oh, right, this is the bollocks I'm covering this month then, where all the stuff I was actually into was in the mag. It was just, you never went near the cover because it was like, you know, you weren't going to do a Hotel Dust cover, for example. Yeah, yeah. Unless, um, you know, um, uh, Matthew Castle Productions buys, make, launches its own magazine and then. Um... Which it would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I was thinking about the covers I was happiest with as an editor, and the first one I came to was a Mountain Blade 2 Bannerlord cover we did on PC Gamer. So right. it was that thing where, A, it was a game that no one else would do, so that itself is exciting. It's, you know, Mountain Blade is a very PC gaming-centric thing. It's, like, kind of janky, but creates interesting stories. Like a classic, you know, PC Gamer's game. Mm. And... Uh, Phil Savage, obviously, who's been on this podcast, who was my deputy editor at the time, he saw a demo and just told the story. Basically, the whole cover feature was like a diary feature of what happens if you take this one character through the game. And it starts with them, like, um, basically being by themselves. They raise an army, you know, they get into, like, battles and all this stuff. And then it ends with that character being, like, detained and put in prison. And that's the end of the demo. And, like, it's a really riveting read. And mm. I remember that feeling like a punt because I had no idea what the cover art would look like because there was no key art for that game. And you, it really is, when it's not like a major publisher doing a game, cover art is such a roll of the dice as an editor. Yeah. 
So, and I really liked it. It was a dude on a horse, but it was like a really nice looking picture of a dude on a horse. And <laughs> that was the, I think that was like one of the issues I was happiest with. And I was there thinking, I wish I'd kind of just done this every issue where I'll just pick something that I think is like cool or appealing to PC gamers and not do stuff like, yeah, Mass Effect Andromeda. I remember being one of the cover features I was least happy with because it was just an interview. And like the game was such an unknown quantity that I felt like I couldn't tell the story of what the game was because EA was trying its best not to say what the game actually was. Then it arrives, mm. it's kind of a dud. And then, you know, that's that really. But um, yeah, so Bannerlord was like the opposite of that. It's like, it's world, it was, you know, world exclusive access. It was literally the game running in front of us. And we got to tell that story in a way that was exciting to the readership. And um yeah, those are that's like the magic formula, I think. Definitely. So yeah, I was curious if you, um, as an editor yourself, Matthew, if you had any cover features that you ran um, when you were like in charge of the Max, where you were like particularly delighted with what was going on. Yeah, I it, like I say, most of my cover feature experience, you know, where more interesting stuff is happening, comes from official Xbox, and that also coincides with an era of less interest in magazines so it was quite rare that we got anything really juicy i mean we we did a we did a couple of absolutely rock solid features on oxm uh, i really really liked joe scribbles Death sex mankind divided feature that he did uh that was just a great example of of like g- playing the game good interviews wise use of interviews as well so not just not asking anything which you can sort of work out for yourself just by playing the game, which happens a lot. I feel like people often bodge interviews and just ask stuff which you could naturally figure out for yourself. So he asked some interesting, like, Mankind Divided sort of adjacent questions, in a way, which which made for some, like, fun box-outs. Um, he did a really good breakdown of, like, one mission and, like, all the different ways it could play out, which was just a, a nice sort of, like, representation of like how that game kind of plays and works just really solid feature craft yeah like um there's a couple more i sort of wanted to mention so i talked about the daisy cover that we um we did in one of our cover episodes Mm. the cover itself was dodgy but the actual like feature was so good because it was just like it was the the confidence of having a diary feature be like the main event really where Mm. you know you take a gamble on it being like it's going to be five of us playing the game together and streaming it on Twitch and hoping that something interesting happens. But obviously when you have the entirety of Twitch trying to stream snipe you and come after you and you're on the run making a last stand, that was kind of what the story was. And it ended up being this really exciting narrative that was fun to tell. And it, I think it got people mm. excited about the magazine and it felt like my first sort of like slam dunk as an editor. That was good. Obviously the cover art, not so much. Dude in a hat. A very <laughs> mundane dude in a hat. There was no fixing that. But um I have to mention uh, Warhammer 40,000 Dawn of War 3 as well, which was the, I think, like the only game that was ever sort of revealed by a magazine that I worked on. So that's obviously right. more of a, like a 90s and noughties phenomenon where a game could literally be revealed in a magazine. It still happens every now and then. But yeah, we actually like, you know, we basically, the the second it was announced, we have a, had our cover feature out and a feature on the website. And it felt exciting to be part of that. Again, that mm. kind of gets weird where it's like, you are sort of part of this sort of hype cycle in a lot of ways. Like you're, f- this is how a lot of these cover features come together is they coincide with an embargo. You kind of walk a fine line, but there's no denying that, you know, in screenshots, it looked really good. It ended up being a game that that audience hated, but, uh, you know, at the time it seemed really exciting and it was revealing this new entry in a very sort of like beloved PC series. 
So that felt really exciting, even if the end game ended up being like um, quite disappointing for the fans of the series. So mm. I don't know, Matthew. The last thing I wanted to ask you in this section was um, the way that publishers sort of like roll out these waves of coverage. So I don't know if you noticed this, but when I was um, a senior staff writer on Play Magazine, like I remember being incredibly jealous that Games TM got to go on the first trip for Bioshock Two. And right. they saw like the big sister in the game, and like learned, you know, that it was set in Rapture again, and had all this stuff going on. And then you played as the big daddy, and I was that was like the most jealous I ever was of like someone else's access. But then <laughs> later on, when I covered Bioshock Two myself for a cover feature, I got to actually play the game, and like the multiplayer was revealed. We played that, interviewed a bunch of the developers, and the game was blown wide open. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about the idea that like sometimes if you come later you get better access but it isn't as new or sort of shiny as an editor how much did you think about the sort of like what place you were in the hype cycle of the game and what that what that means to your readership you know in terms of enjoying the feature yeah i again on nintendo games didn't really work like that you know nintendo was quite kind of everyone got everything at once you know the whole world was dealing with the same thing so you were never ahead. You were always slightly behind the curve, which was, you know, obviously difficult. So I only really, yeah, got got sort of sampled this on on OXM. I like I, I again. I just I, I always thought like access access was king. I mean, we would very rarely. There were things we turned down, you know, which on paper are sexy, just because. They felt like super, super hard work or there were going to be like mad restrictions or not mad restrictions or like just mad limitations on what they could actually tell and show you. And you thought, you know what, this just isn't going to be like valuable or something, you know, if we had two, you know, two similar things on the go, access would probably trump the other. All right, then, Matthew. So we've covered cover features quite comprehensively there. So um, let's take a short break and come back and we're going to talk about announcements and the weirdness of game demos. Back to computer games. So we've had a bunch of questions through from people, and um, one question that seemed relevant to this episode was from Theo, which arrived just a couple of days before we started recording this. So, um, hi chaps, what are the telltale signs that a game in development is in big trouble? How does it feel to attend a preview or hands-on event for a forthcoming high-profile release when both you and the person sitting opposite you are completely aware that you're looking a complete stinker in the face. So, to this question, Matthew, I actually struggle to think of like something where it was an out-and-out disaster. So there's one game mm. I was shown an early demo of. It, it's like years ago. I won't say what the game is because the demo is shown on the on the premise that like it's not quite ready to be to have impressions based on it. And it was so shit. It was such a boring looking game. It was is it such out a, now? Yes, it is. And it was like okay. tepidly received. But it was um it was a really, really poor demo and made the game look really boring. That was one where I thought, uh, jeez. But I was curious if you had any experiences like this where you were looking at a game and thought, you know what, this is this is not convincing and we kind of all know it. It's odd because I feel like anything which is severely broken in this day and age just wouldn't make it that far. Mm. You know, like, it's quite rare that the demo itself, for me, the the thing that tends to give away games and that sets off alarm bells in my head 
is how they talk about the game. There are a few like talking points that if they reach for early on when they're telling you about it, if that I think, well, if that's the most interesting thing, or if that's the most exciting thing, this is going to suck. Again, I haven't got a specific reference here, but like they, they, there was a time where if someone starts talking quite early on in the presentation about how accurate a, like a building looks, like we worked with these people and we got the blueprints to make this thing. I always think, oh man, is really like we've, we're already at that. That that that's and that's a super specific thing. But that's that's happened a few times where I've thought, oh god. More generally, I feel like by the time you see a game, it is so far along. They should have a really good idea of, of like what it is and, and how to talk about it. And if they don't know how to talk about their own game, that's that's what worries me. I just think if there's a really clear like vision for the game inside the studio, that will translate to quite a clear pitch when they're talking to you in the session. And like the one that the one that this was really bad for was Battleborn, which is every time I saw Battleborn they talked about it in a different way and they never had a line on that game and you were like, what the fuck is this thing? I mean, everyone always jokes about that infamous Randy Pitchford tweet where <laughs> yeah. he was like, Battleborn is... And then just a load of nonsense. Yeah. Just like a load of buzzwords. And that's what it was like being in demo sessions for that as well. You know, I had times where people were like, "It's you know, it shares the same qualities as Street Fighter. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is insane. This is out in six months. And everything about that was just... The messaging on this game internally is so messed up, I don't really think they know what they've made or why they're making it. And lo and behold, that's what it was like to play. Yeah, I think that I agree that basically all of those are sort of like um, red flags. Like um, a classic example of like an on-the-box feature that who gives a fuck is um, the tier one operators for Medal of Honor. You right, know, that's yeah. that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like we've basically made a, a naff version of Call of Duty. But we're going to sell it by saying we've talked to these guys who like you can't even find out their names. But oh, isn't this exciting? And it's like, well, all, all that is well and good. But you've made a campaign that's not even as good as like the worst Treyarch Call of Duties. So it's like it doesn't really amount to anything. Being completely transparent, I didn't see that in demo form. But I'm more talking about that as an idea of like, here's an on the box feature to try and get people excited about the game. A USP, a kind of brand pillar or whatever it is. And it just, yeah, yeah it just doesn't do anything for me. Everyone talks about pillars of game design and what they're going for in the brand vision or whatever. And if, if you've got that stuff like nailed early on and you at least have something you're working towards, and then that's often the pillars they parrot at you in the presentation. But when they don't even have that, you think, what were you doing this whole time? Yeah, I've, I've got a few examples here to kind of answer Theo's question. So, I mean, it's never been a situation where I'm there with a developer. We're both thinking this is bad. Like, that's... um. It's not quite got to that, but I've I've seen loads of demos that I wasn't like inspired by or I thought, who is this for? So one example was the Batman Telltale game. So we saw that quite shortly before it came out actually at E3. They built this demo to look like the demo booth to look like the Batcave. All that was very impressive and I thought, well, how can a Batman Telltale game be bad? Like it's um you know, they'd made The Walking Dead, they made The Wolf Among Us, they were really hot, obviously, for a, mm. a little while there burned bright and very shortly and you know used up their goodwill and then now they're gone and it was it's quite a sad story i think but um mm. this game i was completely unconvinced by this game as like uh oh choose what kind of batman you want to be and it's like well batman's fucking batman like you gotta have a better <laughs> pitch than this and the second game does have a better pitch which is like there are two jokers that can you know manifest in the story that's a really strong pitch i've not played it i'll confess but everyone's told me that that's like 
yeah, get on through the first game. It's just okay. But then the second one has got this like really, you know, interesting Joker thing in it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But this mm-hmm. demo, I was just there thinking, I don't think you have an angle on Batman. I don't think there's a reason for this game to exist other than you got the license. And mm. that's one example of like being unconvinced during a demo. Another was, I remember vividly, Mini Ninjas, the game from IO Interactive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know who that game was for when I saw it. I was there, I think they said like, oh, we want to make a game for our kids to enjoy or something like that. And I remember just thinking, but it's a mounted to this very, very vanilla looking family game with lots of characters screaming, mini ninjas. And I just, I, I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't think I've ever been more switched off by the elevator pitch for a game. But luckily <laughs> I was seeing it the same day I saw Batman Arkham Asylum for the first time. So I um, could kind of ignore it and move on. Oh, but nice. um, yeah, so that kind of comes to mind. So demos that don't convince generally, Matthew, I, I actually flagged one here. So mm. do you remember when we played that Dying Light multiplayer game at Gamescom? and Like a Battle Royale type thing? Yeah, and it was perfectly like fine. But I was there thinking it had no place in the market. It was like yet another multiplayer game. It felt like it would have been a multiplayer mode in a game like 10 years before. Yeah, but I remember seeing it, thinking, "Okay, this is doomed. Like this is, um, you know, a, a fun little thing, but it's doomed." I remember that's what I was thinking in my head as I was playing it. <laughs> um, and I wondered if you had anything like that, where I'm like, you, you kind of see a demo, and whether you think it's good or bad, you don't necessarily think there's like a place for it. Yeah, at uh, Gamescom one year, there was a Bandai Namco stand where they basically had a demo station, and it had all their games on. So you could play like whatever you wanted at the six, and it had that Man of Medan which I, I thought was just te- terrible, the, the, sort of the, the horror game. It didn't work for me in the demo. Everything that didn't work in the demo then translated to, to the full game. It was just very, very flat, didn't, didn't work for me. And uh, another game by Don't Nod, I think, was it Twin Mirror? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That other, yeah. Like a Twin Peaksy thing. I, I, they were more, I'd say they're more examples of just like not very good demos of not very good games rather than this is completely pointless, like the Dying Light <laughs> example. Weirdly, I'll tell you a demo I was completely wrong about, but actually I thought was really underwhelming, is I saw a very early demo of Arkham Asylum. It was basically the beginning of the game, but absent the bit where Batman's walking through the asylum with the Joker. Hmm. At that point, it just looked like a super linear brawling game. Like All the demo seemed to be was Batman moving from room to room, punching some guys... It looked like, because we weren't hands-on, we were watching it, it looked like pressing button cues just to sort of rope people up. It looked very automated. The thing that really stands out was Batman throwing his batarang at the chattering Joker teeth. <laughs> I was just like, what is this? He's just throwing his batarang at these teeth everywhere. There's always teeth in this asylum. This is really weird. Because what they didn't give you was any kind of context of how it was a bit Metroid-y and how it was going to kind of open up and lead you around. And there was going to be this this layer of like Riddler stuff on top, which made the environment kind of super interesting and interactive. They were holding that stuff back. But without that context, I thought, oh, this is going to blow. Like, I really thought that game was like, dude, I thought it was going to be like just a six out of 10 tie-in game. Because at the time, superhero games had basically all been shit. I don't think I even thought on it again until people started reviewing it. And the chat in the office was like, wow, this fucking Batman game is amazing. I was like, it can't be that thing we saw where he was hitting all the teeth with batarangs. That looked insane. Um, but yeah, that's... and Yeah, and when I played that section again, like, it just, I, like that's a game that... You have to feel it, you know, you have to get into the combat and, in, you know, get the feel of the thing and, and see how slick it all is. That was more of a the risk, a, a bad demo of a great game, I thought. 
Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I can. I wasn't convinced by that game for a little while, but like, um, I think like when they first announced it, I saw the Game Informer cover, and they were like, "Well, it's not the Christian Bale Batman." I was like, "Ah, oh, feels like I got a cheap knockoff." And to be honest, right. Matthew, the teeth thing was kind of dumb. Like, um, even just taken by itself, it was like you have to destroy these. T- I mean, they were collectibles basically, weren't they? But right, but that's but it looked really linear. It looked like Batman, and he had. You know, he does in that section. He's got a very fixed route through the thing. And you were just walking down these corridors, smashing plastic teeth, which is a really weird pitch for a game. I mean, yeah, show me the Batman comic where he goes around destroying plastic teeth. I've not read it, I'll be honest. <laughs> the only other thing I was going to, like, a little shout out is, is for games which have a very specific learning curve. And then they give you a level from the middle of it out of context can really missell or undersell that game like i played a demo of devil may cry 5 at gamescom or e3 and i was like oh this is rubbish because i was rubbish at it but actually when i played that game from the start i absolutely loved it i thought it was amazing because it kind of introduced its ideas one by one but if you dump someone into the middle of devil may cry 5 and go like work out these controls you've only got 10 minutes with this demo you can only come away with having a really negative experience but that's more like i guess the context of of like demo craft you know rather than the game itself well i think that that's an interesting thing to discuss because um you know demos are a weird thing so we talked earlier about um film magazines and how they you know have to like sort of like make calls on well they just have to talk about the the kind of set and where they think the film's going but you can't Mm. form really detailed calls on what it is because it doesn't exist yet with games we know that this is even more the case than anything else when you read about um big studios making e3 demos it's like nightmarish to build into the process for many of them my theory on why um, the Forza Horizon demos, Matthew, are always like the little samples of the game is because it's kind of the tutorial of the game. So they build something that you basically that basically has a purpose in the game and can also act as a demo. Yeah. And I, I think that's just quite an interesting approach to it. It's like these are all the kind of basics of the game and how it works. And like it's not completely like useless as a thing they've created. I think. Yeah, that, yeah. it's it's true. It's like... It's the ultimate vertical slice. It's it's the thing that gets you excited about the game. It's the thing that educates you about the game. I mean, really, the it is the perfect demo. Yeah. So many games stumble. Even something like Assassin's Creed, which, if you're familiar with them, you have a basic idea of how they work. But there's enough nuance between each game, different gadgets or, or little weird mechanics they've tweaked, that just dumping someone in a in a middle of that one of those games. There was one for um. Assassin's Creed Syndicate I remember playing at Gamescom where it was like infiltrate the Tower of London assassinate this person I had this grappling hook and I didn't really know how it worked and they they basically paired you up with a developer who was kind of guiding you on the headset or whatever but it felt um it can't help but feel like super messy and then it's funny because when you get back to those moments when you're playing it for a review or in your own time you're like oh yeah, I remember really struggling with this, but now it makes perfect sense. That's always a, a fun moment of realisation. Yeah, it's interesting, because I, when I went on that Assassin's Creed Odyssey trip, the um, they did the very interesting thing of like basically giving you like two islands to explore. So in that game, there's obviously like a whole bunch of islands you can sort of sail to, and, and um, they have their own kind of self-contained quest lines and stuff. So that works quite well as a demo. When we previewed Assassin's Creed Odyssey, the content they used for it, was like end game content before it came out. It was like fighting Medusa. Oh yeah, yeah, that Gamescom demo. 
yeah, absolute kick my ass. I mean, you were really kitted up and had, you know, you had all these kind of gadgets and stuff. But I mean, they literally taught, took something you'd do at like the hundred hour mark to show it off, which I thought was super weird. I mean, I never really understood that decision. Yeah, that was bizarre. So yeah, it's, a, it's always a tricky thing for people to figure out how to demo a game properly. Uh, did you ever read that um, feature? I can't remember which, um, I think it's one of the uh, LA Times or something like that did a feature on Uncharted and how the, they got the demo for that ready before E3 and how a massive part of it broke and they basically had to work 24-7 to fix it before E3. And it was like <laughs> illustrating what a fucking nightmare it is for developers to make them. And um, yeah, it's it's, yeah, it, I- it's weird. You've also got the. I mean, it's slightly different from what we're talking about. The the kind of the stagecraft of the staged demo is is really interesting thing, which has come up in recent years, where you have your big conference and someone does an on stage live demo, but it's actually choreographed within an inch of its life. And there was a, when Halo Five came out, there was like a big documentary series about Halo Five that Xbox made, and a couple of episodes of that covered like the path to E3 or the road to E3, are talking about the art of making, you know, trying to get one level to the kind of polished state it needed to be for E3. And all the, because it was a co-op mission, all the people in it, like practicing the level, practicing playing together. So they were all in exactly the right time for it to look as sexy as possible. And it's quite an open and honest depiction of, of basically like the bullshit that goes into an E3 demo of like, we need this game to look abnormally good, but within the confines of being like, it also honestly represents what you can do in the game. But it's it's kind of the game, like the optimal version of that game. You will never play it as slickly as those people play it in that one demo. Yeah. The, the E3 demo now that when I see it, I'm like, oh, absolutely fucking not. It's when people are doing like voice chat for a co-op game. Yeah. And they're like, you know, uh, SE Bravo, I'm going in and all this stuff. And it's like, people don't talk like that. Don't do those demos. And like, um, you know, even more offensive where it's like, bro, I can't believe you just blew up this building and stuff. And I just... Yeah. I, yeah. In reality, it's like, should I should I go through the door? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Andy, should he go through the door? <laughs> Andy, <It's> Andy. Like... <laughs> yeah. It's like... Uh, no? Uh... Anyone? Is Andy on mic? Oh, he's gone to get a cup of tea. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he just puts kids to bed. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll see him in 10 minutes. And then it goes wrong and someone goes mental at everyone else in the group. You fucking idiots. Why don't you wait? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's like, oh, why the fuck did you fly off? We've only got one fucking, like, um, banshee to finish the mission. What the fuck are you playing at, mate? Like, um, yeah. Instead, uh, that's like... I'd love to have it. an E3 demo that was like that. That would be amazing. E3 demos as well, like, always do this thing where the developers, if it's like a first-person or third-person game, they'll walk very slowly and methodically and, like, hover over some environmental design for you to yeah. look at and be like, ooh, look at these levels. I actually um, watched what I think is one of the greatest E3 demos ever the other day, which was the Uncharted 2 Hotel destroyed by the helicopter um right bit like and it's um it's like just drake on the kind of rooftop with chloe and he sort of goes holy shit and like, the audience is so into it they're just like oh yeah. my god this game looks so fucking good that was like just a phenomenal bit of like it's actually just a part of the game like it's a legit part of the game they didn't fudge it really but even that is a bit where like <laughs> the developer stops and like looks over the side and shows you the entire city like slow kind of pan and it's there thinking yeah that's not how people play the game but um it's there's very much like uh, a lot of thought has gone into like how these things are presented did you do you know about the um the weird backup demo players uh no i don't know about this at uh e3 and uh gamescom and stuff where they have one of those demos where someone's walking through it sometimes the the builds are unsteady 
So they have two other people repeating the exact same steps at the same time off stage so they can cut to their feed if they need to. Mm. So I, I, I remember someone telling me this about, I think it was the Mathia Free demo. They were like, we have this route through the, the level, but we know that it sometimes crashes at this particular point. So we have two other dudes sitting backstage basically playing along exactly the same choreographed movements. So if it does crash, they can just hop into their feed and carry on playing with their screen, if that makes sense. Hmm. It's just like how choreographed it all is. It's, it's kind of mad. I was really curious, Matthew, to talk about hype generally and the games media relationship with hype. So do you think that games media processes games announcements and hype in a way that's healthy and good for the reader? And do you think it always was when we were doing it? I think the tone of it has changed over the years. I think there's a lot more room now for just getting on board the hype train, no question. I don't know if that's shaped by the kind of rise of like influencers and, and they've changed the tone of the conversation. So much of the conversation, or the loudest part or the most popular part, is just absolutely unabashed joy and support, whether genuine or not. And, and and so into that climate, ju- journalists have to work out, well, what, what am I doing here? Am I, am I going to be part of this hugely popular movement, which is just sheer enthusiasm? Or am I going to maybe do my job and be a bit more reserved and question this? I think fundamentally we work on, or at least I have, all the things I have worked on set out from a position that we like games, we support games and we celebrate games. But because of that, we also hold games to a, a high standard and we want them to hit that standard and it's okay to say when they don't or to have your doubts. If your baseline was, I expect this to be shit, you probably shouldn't be doing it as a job. Like, I don't know if this is still a hobby for you and it's not a very healthy environment. And there are people like that. You occasionally meet them where they're just sort of like, their vibe in the demo is, well, impress me, where I'm actually kind of, I'm open to everything being good, but I'm not surprised and I'm not worried when it isn't and I'm happy to talk about that. If you were starting now as a journalist, that's where you basically have to decide, are you going to do that? You know, are you going to question what you see or are you going to just try and ride the hype wave? Are you basically going to be a professional fan? It's, um, I think in some ways it's tougher than ever right now because obviously events have sort of gone away in the last year. And I was thinking about how um, when um, Sony did demos for Ratchet and & Clank and Returnal for the press, they... I think they did them super close to release, like a few weeks from release, mm. and it was almost like I, I don't know. It was it was so it was so kind of like close that it was like um, no impressions had been formed on anything before that, other than the um, the stuff that they show publicly. As far as I know, I don't think that Sony did any demos for those games before that. Mm. And like the pandemic, I think allowed publishers to turn these things into a tunnel of hype to a large degree because we were all just sat at home waiting for Sony to talk about the PS5 when it wanted to talk about it. And mm. for a long time, the only resource on the PS5 was like <laughs> two Wired articles, which explained how it worked, which was a really bizarre way to kind of talk about the console. And mm. um, I sort of like, I, I felt like the absence of a, if there was like an E3 in the middle of last year, I mean, Sony wouldn't have been there, but you might have seen more in the way of game demos where people could form early impressions. And I think it's like, the sort of absence of that culture means there's less pressure to kind of create this stuff and it means that i don't know it's it's a bit it's probably a bit harder from the outside looking in to um 
to actually like make calls on what these games are like at an early stage in the process. Whereas it felt like that was part and parcel of being on print mags in our day. It was like you might see a game a year before it's out and be able to mm. form impressions on a demo that the public won't see. But now, like you say, I think influencers blur that line a bit. I have been for a few years. I was on like the. I wasn't going to press events. I was going to influencer events instead, hmm. and they are completely different. Like they're they're really um, they're quite strange things. Because the press event, you go there as a journalist, they show you it, and then they understand that that's that's what you'll do. Where the, the influence events, it's a lot more. It's like a lot more instructional. In like it, they don't say like you're going to love this, but they're very kind of like you'll want to talk about x y and z which they would never say to a fucking journalist like that would just never happen but at the info events it is a lot more like you know here's a powerpoint presentation on this that and the other and some of that stems from the fact that they're getting to record video and and there's there's quite strict instructions about what you can and can't show and all that stuff but it's it's laid out for them the 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 journey through that game is 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 simplified and over explained to influencers which is probably a bit condescending when these aren't stupid people but i always used to find it really entertaining of like i just wouldn't i wouldn't put up with any of that shit if i was still on magazines yeah Uh, but that's that's the nature of the beast unfortunately there's also a weird thing where some of the influencers there might be paid to like be there and to put like sponsors well that's well well, that's yeah i mean that's that's the unspoken thing is it's completely transactional it's like you're here here's what we want you to talk about where where with journalists it's you're here here's what we want to talk about what you do with that it's kind of up to you (laughs) yeah it kind of gets spread out where i think influencers like if you're on a smaller channel you're kind of there to get the access and to help grow your channel i've noticed that a couple of times so like yeah influencer is a completely different thing we also Mm. mentioned the um a completely separate thing but like um we've talked about the division two trip we went on where the influencers went and did some kind of like video friendly obstacle course thing while we sat right. in a garage and complained for three hours which was like <laughs> <laughs> i sat in there suffering terrible onion pie related heartburn <laughs> <laughs> yeah you didn't bring enough rennies for the trip it was um a good I time studded that onion pie with rennies <laughs> <laughs> yeah i sort of um I, th- I thought about these sort of like a bit more about this recently because i am um, listening to jason schreier's book he talks a lot about the making of bioshock infinite and early on i think it's e3 2011 there is a, a, a quote-unquote gameplay demo of bioshock infinite that shows like elizabeth and booker running through columbia the songbird turns up at the end it's quite a famous demo the voice actors are wrong like it's not troy baker and um the other actress i'm afraid i don't remember her name but um it's like it, it looks like Bioshock Infinite, but it doesn't. Like it's obviously a kind of like a fudge or like a vertical slice or something like that. Mm. But obviously, as press, everyone covered it because everyone was excited. It'd been four years, so it was plausible that, you know, a a build of Bioshock Infinite would exist. People had no reason to question it wasn't the real thing. But when um, you know, listening to the audiobook, it basically the game didn't really exist properly until um like Rod Ferguson came aboard to like pull it together at the very end. Like without him, mm. there were, without him, there wouldn't have been a game. Is largely the the consensus of that book, and that happens really late on. So I was curious what you make of this. Where is there almost like a collective lie you have to buy into when you're seeing preview content, or like do you think it's understood by the reader that these things just change and that's the reality of it? 
the intention and, and messaging of the thing is probably more important. I, I just think over time you learn how to interpret what you're shown and you see the telltale signs of something which isn't quite right or something that isn't there. You can see when someone's showing you something which is a, is like a, a super polished vertical slice or an idea of what it could be or what they want it to be. You know, it helps when they just when they tell you, you know, like when it's coming out. Is is a big indicator. I mean, these days it's quite rare that you see stuff so early in advance that it's questionable. Like when you see something which is like six months away, you're like, well, it'd be a pretty risky move showing me something fake now. So I I don't know if it's it, it like there's just a natural savviness that comes with time to how these things work, and also Nintendo don't do scripted demos of things. You play, you know, the games they take to E3, you then play at E3 generally across the board is, 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 the, is the vibe. I, I, I haven't had to have been as careful as, you know, you and other peers. Well, let's talk about Cyberpunk. So okay. this game comes <laughs> out, right? It's obviously very broken and has been like a kind of widely documented disaster. Now, there were two E3 demos of this game. The one that was shown in 2018, the one that was shown in 2019. In the 2019 one, when I saw it, I did note that the one in 2018 did feel like too good to be true, but the 2019 mm. one felt more like what a real game looks like. Obviously, the game still ended up being sort of like disappointing in a bunch of ways. But on the flip side, in E3 2013, I saw the first gameplay demo for The Witcher 3, and it was possibly the most impressive thing I've ever seen. It was running on PC and there were a lot of accusations of downgrading afterwards. It did look a bit too good to be true to be running on um, mm. current-gen consoles, to be honest. But they showed us, like, Skellig for the first time, and Geralt, like, sailing. And it was just... And the, the detail of, like, weather and grass effects was just unbelievable. Right, yeah. And um, that was an example where I don't think it mattered as much that the demo was kind of a bit, a bit bullshit, because the finished game ends up being good. But with Cyberpunk, because the release date moves so many times and there are those two grand demos that they make this huge event out of it becomes i think it leaves a slightly sour taste like when i reflect on that first cyberpunk demo that game didn't even really exist so was it right that the demo was like promising all this stuff i don't know what yeah. do you make of all that the whole cyberpunk thing felt like a huge shit show because there was such like passion around that game that if you if you weren't on board with it people were super cynical i like yeah, I have some beef with Cyberpunk, but mainly because the the people who were excited for Cyberpunk were so ghastly to anyone. To I mean, Rock Paper Shotgun kind of what wasn't necessarily as on board with it as other people were, and because of that, we were just hounded constantly, which kind of soured the whole Cyberpunk experience. Uh, that first demo, I thought was absolute horseshit in terms of I never thought for a second it was going to be that, and I had a really bad interview afterwards where I was trying to basically say, I don't really see how you can make a game to that level of like bespoke detail with the scale you're saying to. Like, I just don't, I don't actually think it's possible in this day and age. And the guy was like, well, you know, you'll have to wait and see. And lo and behold, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it's hugely flawed. It's a game which is very detailed in specific moments. And outside of those moments, the quality just plummets. So, yeah, I... It's that's such an extreme case, though. At the same time, it's quite rare, I think. And I think because there, when it does happen, there are huge bust ups. I think it feels like it's happening less and less. I feel like people are 
genuinely a bit more honest because they live in fear of the outrage merchants kind of coming after them and doing graphics comparison videos like everyone gets burnt that way and maybe because of that like you you often see demos now i think yeah that looks about right (laughs) you know it it lacks the wow factor of bullshit but it's probably better that way (laughs) yeah i think we're living through the age of like more of a short short burst kind of like marketing campaign for a game we've all lived through ages of like final fantasy 13 taking like four years to come out or metal gear solid 4 that took you know kojima showed it off super early when it wasn't ready and Hmm. it's like that was so a a part of like covering games on magazines was like you know that these are these that there are these big games that will define the console's lifespan but you still don't know when they're coming out and they might still be years away and um, I feel like even publishers like Square Enix don't have games like that necessarily. Like, I think they've... I suppose they showed off Final Fantasy sixteen super early. But they showed off that Forspoken game, and I think there's even, a, like, a release date year for that. And it's a bit less of a kind of, like, we'll show a Kingdom Hearts 3 trailer at E3 2013, and the game will come out five years later. I feel like right, we're, yeah. out, we're out of that age, and it probably is a bit healthier. You know, I think people have to be a lot more honest in, like, what you see and what they show you. I still... It always amuses me hearing kind of like the little white lies that kind of get told around the edges and the upsell on certain features in the game and how people make them sound a lot more exotic. And I've, I feel like I've got quite a good ear for it in, in an interview now where I can see a, a quote and I can see through it and I can see the mundane reality of it. So, for example, when they were talking about Resident Evil Village, when I think Game Informer did a cover on it or a big story someone someone a couple of weeks before release had loads of access maybe it was an ign first or something and there was this thing about ethan will be able to hunt animals in the world to upgrade (laughs) his character i remember reading that and thinking hunt animals in the world like it's a quote that's designed to make this sound a bit open worldy a bit ecosystemy a bit organic a bit alive when really it's you go and knife a chicken in a very set location (laughs) and you get a bit more health and there's five upgrades in the whole game and it's pretty linear scripted sequence in which you unlock them based on the sequence in which you find the animals i feel like i'm much better at seeing that stuff because i remember you know saying to someone beforehand like i guaranteed that hunting animals thing is it's basically gonna be tantamount to opening a crate and it was the time I got really stung by that was actually on that Rise of the Tomb Raider preview trip where there was this thing about Lara learns languages through the games to decipher ancient riddles which will reveal secret treasures in the world. And I was like, wow, that sounds great. I love riddles. And she's going to learn and develop and she's going to like, oh, what are we possibly going to unlock? That could be really interesting. And what it actually was was you pressed X next to a book to learn a language. <laughs> you then pressed X next to a pillar, which was the ancient riddle. And then it put like a coin chest on the map. It was so underwhelming that that was like the last time I was like, never again am I getting excited for this, this bullshit. Cause it's sort of, it's technically true, but it also isn't true. I, I, yeah, I'm sort of a fan of that art of of the upsell. <laughs> yeah, it's just a funny old thing. I think people's memories are fairly short, ultimately, but it's definitely like yeah, like you say, a part of the craft of making these things. But um, yeah, because it's like they're, tr- they're they're sort of true, but they make it sound so much more exciting than it actually is. Mm. They're like you're going to do this, and you're like, Mecha-, you know, you f- you feel like now saying every time you hear one of those statements, you have to ask, and mechanically. 
How does that translate? Yeah. Tell me right now. <laughs> I'll confess like, to falling for as many of them as anyone else, really. Like, um, I, I kind of admire it in a way. <laughs> I think it's quite a fun kind of grift. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's a game you're playing. It's, it's kind of let's try and get around the, the, like, the, the bullshit. So, Matthew, I feel like we've covered the art of demos there quite comprehensively. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some thoughts on press trips and a few reader questions. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the final part of this episode. And um, because Matthew mentioned Devil May Cry 5 earlier, I've probably used uh, Devil Trigger from that soundtrack in this um, episode. So um, enjoy (laughs) this audio I can use without getting sued by Capcom. So um, (laughs) yes, press trips Matthew wanted to cover last of all. So I'm sure a lot of people know this, but when sometimes when games are revealed, there is a trip element involved where you're flown at a publisher's expense to uh, a city, uh, often in a different country, and you are shown a demo of the game for the first time and there's like a, a big splashy event that goes along with the actual sort of coverage side of things so um obviously on the kind of like press facing side you don't get that much of an impression of of that sort of thing but like um i feel like this came into a head a few years back when people started disclosing when they've been on trips paid for by publishers and kotaku for example i don't think um will take trips that are paid for by publishers they'll they, they'll pay for them themselves so that was quite interesting. But um, I thought we could talk about this a little bit, Matthew, the press trips and the mechanics of them. Do you think press mm. trips are needed and do you think they're justifiable? I'd say they're needed only from the perspective of getting you in the room and getting you to those people. Like if there's a, if there's a place you can go to which gives you better access or there's an access that can only happen somewhere, then it makes perfect sense. It's a little harder to justify when it's like, we're going to fly you to this this place, and they're going to fly these developers to this place. Like, the developers aren't there. Like, I kind of get going to a studio. That kind of makes sense to me, but it, it, it maybe becomes a little a little harder to justify when it when it's just like, there's going to be a party in San Francisco, and there's going to be loads of journalists, and there's going to be loads of developers, and, like, no one naturally exists in San Francisco. We're just there because it's fun. The actual trips, are, and, and then, like, what the actual nature of the trips... A lot of it's down to, like, logistics. Like, you sort of see them as a bit of a jolly, or they can be seen as a bit of a jolly. But also, if you're flying halfway around the world to do some work, you know, interview someone super important or get, like, one shot at seeing something, it is nice to have a little bit of time to, like, acclimatise and not be a total state so you can do the job better. And I, I, I honestly think that's where a lot of the press trip, like, design comes from. You know, it's to get people over there and then just get you refreshed before you can actually do the job. But I think to an outsider, that may seem a little bit like you go and spend a week in Tokyo and you do like one hour interview in the middle of it. (laughs) And that seems a bit shaky. But at the other end of the scale, there is like, we're going to fly you into this grim ass place. You're going to get up at like three in the morning. You're going to be in a terrible mood and then you're going to probably not do your best work. I I would rather the baggier version and and get good work out of it. Yeah, it's interesting because um, when I think about it, there's a portion of them, the ones that I I did in my career, where they feel like uh, they could be borderline holidays in terms of the location and like the amount of time you're there. So I think the longest one I ever did was like Santa Monica for four days in um, for uh, Call of Duty World at War. And it was obviously a really fun trip, but at the same time, probably didn't need to be there that long. That's probably about... In all honesty, that's probably about 20% of the trips, though. Like, the other ones are much more 
sort of like tight. You get there, mm. you basically land like late evening, and then the next day you're seeing a game, and then the day after that you're flying home. That's what most of the press trips are like. The actual mm. time for sightseeing is probably the four or so hours in the morning before you have to go to the airport on that final day. Where yeah, I'm, yeah. the two chunkier chips trips I've done were both Japan with Nintendo, and both times there was quite a thick sh- uh, schedule of events tied to the game. So like I was saying with the Dragon Quest thing, you know, we had the interview quite late into the trip, but, you know, we went to the Dragon Quest cafe and we went and interviewed these people around here. You know, there, there was sort of stuff that, you know, I won't lie, there was there was nice restaurants and some fun stuff as well. But they tried to make more of it, which is something I always quite liked about the Nintendo trips is they they were quite kind of um, cleverly kind of sculpted to give you like a better story and just more material to work with. You know, compared to like, you know, that there, there are a lot of wrestling trips where you go and see a game, a wrestling game, and it's tied to a wrestling event of some kind, like WrestleMania or one of the other big ones. And they're also quite chunky. And arguably, seeing the wrestling is part of the. It gives you some color for the story, but it's really nothing to do with the game. I mean, when I went to WrestleMania, it was uh, maybe like a five day trip, and I think. Like an hour of it was spent doing WWE Wii, but then I didn't find the WrestleMania bit of it like particularly useful to what I was writing. But other people may have done more with it. Yeah, it was like um, so. It's like an hour seeing the game, and then two hours working on your sign that said "Trump will be bold by day's end" or whatever. <laughs> yeah, making my um, my amazing placard, <laughs> "Trump will be bald by night's end." What, yeah, what an amazing prediction. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was yeah. It was it was jolly. It was it was. I I did. I felt kind of bad on that trip because there were so many people back in the office who were super into wrestling who didn't get to go on that. Not an end gamer, but generally, and I was such a fraud, like not not into the wrestling at all. Um, ah, boohoo! You know, like they they did those yeah, trips every single year. Yeah, but it did feel like it feels kind of wrong to be in the room at certain times, and I certainly felt that from the other journalists when we were interviewing all the wrestlers and I was asking them like, do you like wee boxing? And you could hear everyone in the room being like, Oh God, this guy asking with wee boxing questions. That's basically all I asked every wrestler. Do you like wee boxing when everyone else is like, you know, what do you want to say to the undertaker? (laughs) Like, I don't care. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It was an, an odd mix of journalists. Yeah. So my thoughts on press trips, right? Are that, when I reflect on them, have I had a lot of fun on press trips? Absolutely. And have they enhanced my life in a way that, like, where I've genuinely sort of benefited culturally from being able to go to these places that, to be honest, my family could never afford to go to? Mm. Absolutely. There is no doubt that there is a net gain in terms of, like, I don't know, me as a person from being able to go to these places, even if they're not strictly, like, you know, they're not holidays, they're not sightseeing trips. But the, even just like I mentioned Quebec earlier, that was an incredibly tight turnaround. But I'm still really glad I saw Quebec. Do you know what I mean? Even mm. though I, all I really saw it was like it was like an hour tour on a bus, and that was basically all I saw of the city. But I still the actual feeling of going there and being in that space was you know still enriching. So all of that is like absolutely true. I'll completely own up to that. There is like a, a net benefit to going for sure. Do I think you need it to? To do like good games coverage? No, I don't. Not unless it's kind of tied to a, a studio visit or 
there is some like you say some other kind of cultural element that feeds into the trip so mm. i would say that basically means that 50 percent of the trips i've been on probably could have just been in like you know a, a sort of like basement of a bar in london which is where most trips sort of take place but i was curious matthew mm. if um by going to these places do you feel like you've had the same thing where it's like i would never have been to these places off my own dime but by going i oh, felt yeah i know. mean yeah I, I, basically in the, i think i have exactly the same thoughts as you like I wouldn't have got this opportunity. You know, I can remember going on that Japan trip and we were in quite a swanky hotel and it was like a skyscraper. I was super high up. I remember getting there. I was very tired from the flight, but looking down out the window and the building next to us had like, it was another, it was a smaller skyscraper, but on top of it was like a, uh, some kind of like park for dogs. And so there are just all these dogs running around on top of this skyscraper. <laughs> right. I remember looking at that and thinking, like, "Wow, it's a mate! Like, what what a thing that I've seen! Like, I can't believe that <laughs> this is this is my job." And um, you know, especially back then as a staff writer, where I was basically paid zero pounds, I felt like this this you know this feels like compensation in a way that I get to see this surreal dog building. That is true, I think. There is, like, even though it's not strictly one-to-one, there is, like, an element of, well, at least I have this perk. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I, I, I didn't get the perk as much as some of my peers because, you know, there were fewer trips on Nintendo, but, you know, the couple of the Nintendo ones landed big. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do believe in going to the studios, though, if, if they can make that happen. Like, my best work's come out that way. I, I love meeting developers. I love talking to developers outside of the kind of high-pressure environment of e3 and gamescom where you've got such limited time one of the best press trips i've ever done was actually beginning of last year for Baldur's gate 3 where we went over to paris for basically just 24 hours and they played an early access demo for about three hours we watched a three-hour demo it was like a whole afternoon of of them just live playing talking through it and it kept breaking and then they it was super honest about like the state it was in and then afterwards that it was in this like weird kind of underground kind of cavern and then we had dinner there with the team as well and you were just sitting there chatting and it was you know it wasn't a formal interview but we had had formal interview slots but you could just talk quite freely about the game like they're all smart they all knew what they could and couldn't say yeah and it was just it felt it just felt very close to it and you've got a good idea of who they are as people and that gives you a better idea of what it is they're trying to achieve or the place they're coming from with the game. I find that I find that very valuable. Like I don't need, you know, I'm grown up enough to be able to deal with like real people. I don't need the, the slick presentation thing. If anything, I react badly to that. You know, I, I like to believe this is a, a flesh and blood person making the game and stuff like that really helps. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm an advocate for trips on that basis. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And um, the other thing that the other kind of weird thing that happens is you become, I don't know if you found this, but I became slightly tired after a while of like the different sort of repeated beats of trips where you land, you're jet lagged, and then you sort of like go again. And sometimes you do trips like that um, Division 2 one, which was quite a fun sort of like, it was quite a fun little micro trip that mostly I think you enjoyed it most because I just complained the whole time. And yeah. you enjoyed hearing me complain, which was fun for you. It was like um, perfectly enjoyable, and I really liked the division too. But like, um, I think on the last day we almost got stranded in Paris because of the snow. And I think I, at that point I was just like, "Oh my god, I just want to go home." And like, um, 
Yeah, I, I, they're not always fun, are they? Press trips. They are. They're sometimes they they are just like you know. After a while, it does just become sort of work. There's a novelty that there is when you start out out in writing about games, but then that wears off over time, right? Yeah, and I, you know, it, it's all on an on an individual basis. Sometimes it's a it's it's a long trip for something terrible, or sometimes like the actual game content is disappointing, and then you feel like it was all a bit of a bust. Um, I had quite a notorious trip to see the Wii survival horror game Cursed Mountain which is set in like Tibet up a mountain with these like devil monks and they showed the game off in the Austrian Alps but the press event was like up a mountain which take a chairlift up a mountain and then walk around this mountain they went into a cave and they were basically projecting all the assets and gameplay onto this like rocky wall of this this very cold alpine cave and you're looking at this stuff and you're like is it like you can't really tell what what's the game and what's the weird cave wall (laughs) (laughs) so you don't know how rough it looks it was quite hard from a practical point of view also and this is a common theme in a lot of my press trips we then stayed up all night at this like alpine lodge eating cheese until five in the morning and i had some of the worst heartburn I've ever had. And I no one had a Rennie. I didn't have any Rennies. Um, this was in my younger days when I wasn't re- as reliant on them. And I remember trying to, like, ask if anyone had anything for this thing. And they gave me this really strong spirit that was, like, made out of cloves. And they were like, oh, drink this, drink this. And it tastes absolutely disgusting to try and suppress this heartburn. So that was really my lasting memory of that trip. <laughs> Yeah, that's um wow, that's quite a trip. I mean, first of all, like why on earth would you project a Wii game? It runs at fucking four eighty I. Like it's not gonna look good blown up, is it? It's like Yeah, and and not onto like rock. <laughs> uneven rock. <laughs> Cursed mountain. Wow, I'm kind of almost fascinated to play it. I mean, it might be come up in a future um games court episode. Oh yeah, it's 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 very six out of ten. <laughs> Amazing. Cursed mountain, wow. Yeah, yeah I am um, Cursed Press Trip. The thing is that working in games, there are all kinds of stories you hear about trips that, like, um, you know, many of which you don't tell because there are other people's stories, and some of yeah. which probably don't need to be public anyway. But, like, um, what I heard about, I won't say the game, but, like, um, someone went on a press trip to, like, a, a medieval castle for a, a demo, and um, afterwards there was, like, a kind of banquet thing, and there was, like, one toilet between about 60 people. And I was there <laughs> thinking, if, like, if, what if, so, what if everyone got food poisoning at the same time? Would it be like um, American Vandal season two, where it's just people like shitting all over the place? Like that could end in complete disaster. So, um, as a man who's I very conscious very, of toilets, you know, very stressed out about like <laughs> this. Probably says more about me than anything about going to the toilets in game studios <laughs> because you think like, what happens if I run into someone like really famous just after I've taken a shit? <laughs> It'll be like, super awkward. I don't want my like one interaction with Warren Spector to be like I've just had a shit. Yeah, just imagine it's like irrational circa twenty twelve and like you're you're sort of like shitting while Ken Levine's talking about like, oh maybe we should add this bit to Columbia <laughs> <laughs> having a quick meet and it's like, what the hell? And then they just have to get out of there. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's um, yeah. I, I'll be honest. That has probably crossed my mind as someone who gets quite anxious about toilets. Probably not. <laughs> it's probably not surprising to the listeners of this podcast that we both get anxious about toilet situations. That's like probably not a surprise to them. Have I ever have I ever told the thing on this podcast about the hot chocolate in um 
in the Eurostar. No, I don't think so. This is where I went to uh, when I was at Paris, about to get the Eurostar home after a press trip. I bought this hot chocolate from the sandwich shop in in the train station. It was really rich. And I was like, oh, yuck, I hate this. I wanted to throw it away. And um, the only, because it's a train station, all the bins have like super translucent bags to make sure you're not putting any bombs in them, I guess. (laughs) And I didn't want to put the hot chocolate in there because I was worried it would spill out and like leak everywhere. And everyone would be like, look at this guy throwing away like a whole cup of hot chocolate. So I thought I'd go and flush it down the toilets in the train station. So I went in to a cubicle, poured it down the toilet, and then the flush was sort of a bit broken on the toilet. (laughs) And I pressed it, and it wouldn't flush properly. And obviously, there's all this now, like, curdling hot chocolate. And it just looked like I devastated it. (laughs) Uh, I was like, oh, no. Like, I can't leave. Because if there's someone waiting to come in, because there were queues... They're going to see all this and they're going to think like, like, what the hell did you eat? And like, why does it smell so sweet and chocolatey? <laughs> like, it's this, like about as curb your enthusiasm moment as I've ever had. <laughs> and just hiding in this toilet, trying to listen through the door for when I thought the room was empty so we could scurry out and leave the scene of the crime. <laughs> I sort of um I feel like I I need to tell my own sort of embarrassing press trip story here because um I probably made myself sound too professional on this podcast and <laughs> I've got a couple that like of involving me that have become like legend and then like they kind of get retold by PRs to kind of embarrass me when I become like editor of PC Gamer or whatever to um oh, nice. to be like level the playing field I guess it's like oh did you know Samuel did this when he was a staff writer so I won't say the game but there's a trip where it ends with me, we're on our way to JFK Airport, and I'm uh, basically urinating on um, <laughs> at, like the side of a freeway outside of Manhattan as the sun is setting. And that's like pretty, because I, I just drank too much before I got, I think I just, oh, we have to get a cab now and go. And then I was like in the in the car, panicking and like doing sort of deep breathing exercises and thinking I'm not going to make it. <laughs> oh, JFK is like 30 minutes away. I'm not going to make it. Did you have and a then, flop sweat? Yeah. Like, and I was like, I was like panicking. And um, someone else who was in the car said that I was trying to climb out of the car. Like it, it <laughs> that was kind of what, that was kind of what happened. This was like really early on. And I know it was like super embarrassing and unprofessional. So, yes. And then like um, being beeped at by loads of like, you know, like 5 p.m. Manhattan traffic while I was um, um, while I I, uh, did that, did that at the side of the road. I know it's not glamorous, but it's like quite a funny story um, that kind of gets told and retold. And I feel like I need to share my own embarrassing story to um, balance it out. But um, I'm a good I'm a good boy these days. So um, don't cancel me. I I don't think. I don't think it's I don't think it's bad or like morally wrong for someone to need to piss. <laughs> no, it's not. But like, um, I think it's allowed. <laughs> yeah, I just underestimated how long the journey was. But um, it's now. Don't my... cancel me because my body needed to wee. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of. I think it was like I could have like just um, thought ahead a little bit more. But um, yeah, a, uh, yeah, a good story. I that... probably shouldn't have tried flushing a pint of quite thick hot chocolate down the toilet (laughs) oh dear well you know um all these things sound very exciting now as as, since i haven't left bath in a year and a half you know Um, yeah but uh yeah cool so i think we've kind of covered press trips off there matthew shall we just fire through these reader questions and call it a day 
Yeah, absolutely. That seems uh, seems like a good call. Yeah, it's been fun. I didn't want to end on a super serious note, and I think the stories are quite a uh, quite a fun sort of like capper to press trip chat. So um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose like uh, on balance, um, press trip's good or bad, we're not sure. So um, moving on. Um, so the questions. Hello, gentlemen. I wondered if I could interest you in one of the following devil's bargains. Matthew's mm. bargain. Very shortly, you will be the first to receive a new Ace Attorney game created in secret by Shu Takumi. Take another drink at home if you're listening. You will believe it is the best game you have ever played. It will not only be a clear 10 out of 10, but also one of the main characters will be based on yourself, forever cementing your place in Ace Attorney lore. In exchange, (coughs) at your current salary, you must spend a whole year writing Sonic the Hedgehog game guides and fan fiction under the close scrutiny of Yuji Naka. Take another drink. Mm. How the fuck did he come up twice in this episode? Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, okay, so my bargain. With immediate effect, JC's Kitchen will be under new management. <laughs> they will guarantee opening hours, and as their number one customer, all your meals will be free forever. In exchange, at your current salary, you must spend a whole year working as Wario's PR representative, helping him promote the need for better ethics in games journalism. <laughs> Do you take the bargain? That's from Benji. Thank you very much for that question, Benji. So just a little bit of context for readers. JC's Kitchen is the a meat stand in Bath that only open only opens when it's not raining. A meat, please, a meat tent. <laughs> it's a meat tent on like a on like in the middle of a, a road basically that opens sometimes depending on what the weather's like and even when it's sunny you can't guarantee he'll be there. You have to go there literally yourself and see if he's actually there. Um it's a it's a ludicrous business model, but the man makes great meat, so he's got me over a barrel. And um, that's the kind of context there. So let's start with your bargain, Matthew. Do you take that bargain? I mean, so I get to play, I get to be a part of Ace Attorney history. Very appealing. Mm-hmm. I get to play a secret game before anyone else. Also, what an exclusive! Uh, at my, the thing is, at my current salary, like I'm a freelancer, and it fluctuates. I mean, yikes. I don't know. A whole year writing Sonic the Hedgehog game guides. At least I get to play some games. Yeah. The fan fiction thing, that's a bit bad. Yeah. Um, under the close scrutiny of Yuji Naka. I mean, the thing is, I've, I've met Yuji Naka, and, and I've, I know him to be a, a relatively, well, in my experience, sour chap. I, well, for I, that one game demo, let's be fair. I mean, that was like one yeah, game Yeah, well, that's demo. it. My one, my one interaction with him was him being cross that I was in front of him in a queue... <laughs> Like, I'd worry that if I was working for him, he'd recognise me on day one and be like, you from Luigi's Mansion 3 or 2, it's you again. And that would just sour things. So we'd have a really rough time. Tough I don't one. know, it's tough. It's a tough... It's a tough... It's not a fun job and it's a tough boss. But my love for Shutakumi, I think I'd probably do it. Won't he just, you like, know? naturally make games that you like, though, even if you're not in them? Like, um, he'll just keep doing that anyway, right? Yeah, will he get to make another Ace Attorney? I don't know. Yeah. You're kind of like, you are kind of like a couple of Phoenix Wright characters combined anyway, though, right? You're sort of like... Which ones? I think you're sort of halfway between Phoenix and Gumshoe. I think that's where I sort of Really? Yeah. That's your read. I mean, do you think that's harsh? Do you think, I mean, am I being cruel there? Uh, No, I'm I'm surprised. Like, Gumshoe's quite sort of... I don't know, he likes eating, but he's an idiot. <laughs> but he can, what I mean is he can be quite goofy, and then, like, yeah. Phoenix is sort of, like, um, switched on, and then, like, um, but also a bit hapless. I don't know, like, uh, it, uh, you know, I, it's not an exact science, Matthew, I'll be I think, I, you see, I, I personally think I, I, I have the cold, hard competence of an Edgeworth, 
but combined with the yeah like the goofiness of one of the other characters i'm not like edgeware i'm goofy but like phoenix white's like an idiot who muddles through and that's not really my deal like i'm you know i'm reasonably with it okay yeah you know yeah i take the deal okay cool well there you go matthew now works for yuji naka uh, i wish him the best of luck with his new career um <laughs> so yeah i look forward to what your... about you well I personally think that it shouldn't take me working for Wario for JC's Kitchen to just be fucking open uh, five days a week. So it's funny, though, the free thing there that, that they mention, um, that Benji mentioned. So um, I actually went to JC's Kitchen yesterday as we record this. And um, despite the cloud, there being clouds, Matthew, and a bit overcast, he was there. But he didn't have enough change. It was lunchtime. And I gave him a tenner for like a £7 wrap. And he said, oh, you got any change, mate? And... I went, well, no, I don't because it's a pandemic and your card machine never works. So, you know, this is the money I've got. And he just let me have it for a fiver. And Ooh. I was just there thinking, just go to the bank. I felt so bad taking money off of him. I thought, oh, come on, man. Like, it took you about five minutes to make me this wrap. Like, I can't, I don't feel good taking your money. And, go, like, will you give him the £2 at another time? Yeah, I think I will. That's the only way I think it can kind of like balance, balance out morally. Or then bad, <laughs> bad, yeah. bad karma shit will start happening to me. You know, like, I'll get. I'll get sort of like shat on and, you know, get into like a brawl or whatever. Also, it feels really smug walking up to a food stand and giving them their money, extra money back. Like you get major smug points in the face of everyone else on the stand. Yeah. They're like, what a saint. That's like in Fable, that would be like plus 20 saint points (laughs) above your head. But there were like, there were like, I don't know, about five or six people behind me who were ready to buy at the stand, all with £10 notes. So you would have to do the same thing. Like it's chaos. Just send someone to the bank. I'd I'd just just say throw in three cans of Fanta. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get it to 10. My suggestion is he runs it like a real business. And like, I shouldn't have to work for Wario for that to happen. So I don't take the bargain. Uh, but I just, by dream of a future where JC's Kitchen has a fixed location that's not a tent that um, is open seven days a week, and where I the man has the change. Dream too. Well, I guess so. But there's loads of empty storefronts in Bath. I feel like he can make a real go of it. Like um, there are loads oh. of like places that have fixed locations that have way worse food than him. He does some of the legit best food in Bath. Which yeah. I should counter that out I mean, for criticizing his business practices. <laughs> I'd say the problem with this devil's bargain is to say JC's Kitchen will be under new management, which is what you don't actually want because he is the chef, he is the manager. If you get rid of him. You get rid of what makes JC's Kitchen JC's Kitchen. Yeah, I mean to be clear, he's a really nice, chill guy. Like, um, oh, very nice. I, I want to make that very clear that I'm just like the ludicrous, angry man who's sort of like, you know, yeah, yeah. This is he's not like he's not like some contrarian meat peddler trying to annoy people. <laughs> no, I'm Steve Martin in this. Like, that's that, that's my character. You know, I'm like the the sort of like very angry, sort of like straight man sort of character. He's the He's the mocker Joe to your Larry David. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a good um, comparison. Yeah, and um, you know, if Kirby enthusiasm tells us anything, it's that he'll uh, eventually destroy me based on the uh, <laughs> yeah. trajectory. Okay, cool. I feel like we've answered that. But it was funny. JC's kitchen seemed to really uh, resonate with people. I had like four or five tweets about it from people like interested in the idea of this like finite um, opening meat restaurant. Um, well, I, yeah, I think the Venn diagram of people who like this podcast and people who would be attracted to meat tents is probably <laughs> pretty vast crossover. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's that should be how we're sort of tagged on uh, Apple Podcasts, like video games, meat tents. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, next question. So this one's from Nick in Colorado. Thank you very much. He sent me a bunch of questions. Um, I might read out a few more um, down the line, but uh, we'll start with this one. What's the most memorable or useful advice you've received for surviving in the games journalism industry? 
Matthew, what about you? It's a bit of a cliche and people say it all the time, but it's it's just like not being a dick, knowing that you're going to be working in, in quite a small pool of people. You're likely to see the same people down the line, even if they're not working with you anymore. And upholding and having a good reputation with them makes sense. It's a small industry, and in the UK anyway, games media. And, you know, you don't want you know People know, people talk. So, but I'd say that's, I mean, don't be a dick. It's kind of like a rule to live by in most jobs. But, you know, cynically, it's even more important in a in a small biz. <laughs> I agree with that. I think that a big mistake that people make is getting pulled into like feuds and like slagging people off and stuff. Every now and then I'll yeah. see people criticizing a certain person who's got a big following and then they'll send their big following after them. And it's like, well, you know, if you just didn't pick a fight, then you'd be left alone and like you know it's it's better to be kind of neutral like this podcast we're fairly honest about how we operate in games media but we don't slag people off because we're like you know i sort of i respect the people who work in the industry and i also don't like i don't like creating drama i don't want people to ever like kind of take a bit of the podcast out of context and it to go to blow up or whatever it's like mm. honesty but without it ever being personal basically i think some people mistake people's personal brands on twitter with who they are like professionally and they try to like mimic it or they try to like take learnings from that to somehow impact their jobs and i think people have to realize that what people are like in real life again this is super obvious stuff but it it seems quite true in games journalism particularly people trying to like break in you see people making mistakes where they just try and parrot someone who's already in there and it doesn't always work out that well. Yeah, I think a lot of people in uh, sort of my era of games media were sort of like very inspired by Charlie Brooker, for example, who was like, you know, mm. more pervasive as a media writer then than he is now. Now he just kind of makes TV shows. So, you know, he's not really in journalism at all, but, you know, has this, had this very like withering sort of style, but very articulate. I think a lot of people aspired to sort of be that and probably including myself, you know, but um these days I've kind of accumulated more of a uh, I'll play Sekiro and then like talk about stuff I eat sort of persona with occasional bre- breakdowns where I play Sonic games and that's kind of like you know I'm sort of build it, you build up your own personality eventually and like I think like the more obnoxious you are on social media the more you, the harder you are to sort of like for most people to just sort of I don't know to, to be able to like read your tweets and not sort of be annoyed. So I keep that in mind and try not to piss off too many people. I'd say the only other thing, and this is something from like, I've recruited you know quite a few staff writers over the years and a major sticking point. The thing which often pushes some people over the line is like an openness and a willingness to try anything games wise and to put in the time to learn something new uh, I, th- I think there's a, a preciousness you get with some people where they're like well this is the thing I like and if you give them something else they'd say oh, I'm not really into you know I don't really know about that like I don't know about something isn't an excuse that that should be the invitation to learn about it or try and get your head around it is is something I've always been quite big on on, on my magazine stuff so like I don't want to hear like I never want to hear I, I can't do that I don't want to do that like the the art of a big part of this job is fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. Um, I think better described as like bluffing, like the art of like being able to. But go like bluffing or just. But the thing is, you, you know, you bluff a little bit, and uh, eventually you find you actually know what you're talking about. That's the mad thing, <laughs> and then you can do anything. Yeah, I think it's like I'll let you say that willingness is the important thing. I think that this is something that magazines yeah. really instill in you, where like you know, there's a finite number of people, there's a freelance budget, and 
you will have to write about things that you you know did aren't used to playing like i've i've written about football games i've written about racing games you know it's just part of the um the reality of covering the stuff even if you're not personally invested and i think that it's a really valuable trait to have that willingness to like ju- dive in and and you know and and to kind of make it happen and so eventually like yeah, you say that's... you know you might not have to cover those games forever but, but certainly at some point you will that's i think that's a that's a a, a much more well-rounded take on it yeah. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem, buddy. Um, yeah, other than that, like it would be basic writing advice. Like, don't make your sentences too long. Don't use too many fucking semicolons. Don't use loads of flowery language that you would never use in real life. Whenever I read that, I'm just really turned off by it. Yeah, those are kind of like some real basic pointers that, um, it, to be fair, it took me years to learn. So um, don't worry if you're making rookie mistakes, basically. But uh, yeah, anything else to add, Matthew? Just, yeah, just try and be, try and, try and have a sense of humour about it. Yep, That's basically it. There we go. The podcast is over. So, thank you very much for listening. It's been fun talking about covering games in a pre-release capacity. Hopefully you enjoyed the very dense chat. It's like um, nice to have a little break from sort of list features. But after this episode, we're going right back to list features. We have two in a row. So, next week, best games of 2009. Been a long time coming. Looking forward to doing that one. And after that, we've got the best Zelda games where Matthew will read out his 10 best games in the series and we'll talk a bit about Skyward Sword now that it's re-releasing in HD. So um, you excited about those episodes, Matthew? Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, the year breakdown. I think the Zelda one could be contentious, spicy. Let's see. I'm excited. It's going to be good. So if you want to follow me on uh, Twitter, I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. Matthew, where can people find you? Uh, Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. If you'd like to follow the podcast, we'll um, tweet when new episodes are available. Funny previews, quote tweets of um, praise and criticism we get. That sort of like gubbins. <laughs> That's uh, Backpage Pod on Twitter. If you'd like to send us a question to read out on this podcast, it's backpagegames at gmail.com. You can also tweet us your questions too. That's absolutely fine. And uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye bye. <laughs>